Hello, this is the Quest series, The Crisis of Our Times. My name is Alan Mulhern. This episode is part B of the European Union between a rock and a hard place. This episode is going to involve some economics, which I will explain as simply as I can. Pan-European political thought has a long history from the post-Roman Empire ambitions of the Middle Ages as it struggled out of the Dark Ages. Everyone has heard of the name of Charlemagne. This pan-European political thought emerged again during the 19th century, inspired by the liberal ideas of the French and American revolutions after the demise of Napoleon's empire post-1815. Victor Hugo at the International Peace Congress held in Paris in 1849 said, A day will come when all nations on our continent will form a European Brotherhood, when we shall see the United States of America and the United States of Europe face to face, reaching out for each other across the seas. The British position, contrary to popular conception, had long been in favour of free trade throughout Europe, but also was one that believed in the political independence of nations. In 1920, with reference to Europe, John Maynard Keynes wrote that, quote, a free trade union should be established to impose no protectionist tariffs whatever against the produce of other members of the union. In a radio address in 1943, in the darkness of World War II, Winston Churchill spoke of restoring the true greatness of Europe once victory had been achieved and pondered a Council of Europe which would bring the nations to peace. After the war, European integration was seen very much as an answer to the extreme nationalisms which had devastated parts of the continent. In 1957, Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and West Germany signed the Treaty of Rome, which created the European Economic Community, the EEC, and established a customs union. In 1973, the communities were enlarged to include Denmark, Ireland and the United Kingdom. Greece joined in 1981. Portugal and Spain followed in 1986. In 1990, after the fall of the Eastern Bloc, the former East Germany joined as part of a reunified Germany. The European Community was formally established with the Maastricht Treaty in 1993. In 1995, Austria, Finland and Sweden joined and in 2004, the Union included Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia and Slovenia, Bulgaria and Romania. The Euro was introduced in 2002 and now covers 19 member states of the 27 remaining. It is the second largest reserve currency in the world. The Lisbon Treaty of 2009 reformed many legal aspects of the European Union, while in 2012 the Union received the Nobel Peace Prize for having contributed to the advancement of peace and reconciliation, democracy and human rights in Europe. This has surely been one of the most significant and even noble attempts in history to create unity and prosperity by entirely peaceful means across such a variety of countries with a terrible history of warfare. For those who have grown up within this amazing European project, 
with its tremendous advantages. The thought of it disintegrating is almost unthinkable. Moreover, a weakened Europe is hardly a good position to face the rest of the world, which has so much danger. However, the core problem of the European Union lies in its economic arrangements that, in my view, should they not be modified, will probably break the Union apart as we currently know it. I am in good company on this matter. As early as 1997, Milton Freeman, one of the great economists of the 20th century, predicted the fall of the European Union. As well as covering the well-known arguments on the deep differences between the member states, he focused on the lack of economic flexibility that arises from adopting a common currency and stressed the great advantages of a flexible exchange rate between different currencies that allows for change and adaptation in a way that a common currency does not. This argument, I believe, is central to our understanding of Europe's present dilemmas. Floating or flexible exchange rates do have their problems, but they possess crucial advantages. Since the Eurozone does not have them, it is a great risk. I now explain this argument in more detail and add a further one concerning the growing debt crisis of the European Union. It is not only external shocks, such as the oil price rises of the 1970s, that flexible exchange rates are best suited to cope with. In the European Union, it is the internal crisis of the exploding and uncontrolled debts of member states that is the great danger. The rigid maintenance of the euro, with the absence of flexible exchange rates, plus the escalating debts of the Union, will undermine its coherence, lead to the downfall of the euro, and provoke a severe banking crisis, which will go global, and provoke the possible breakup of the Union, certainly its reduction, possibly back to a core of countries from which the Union should not have expanded in such haste. The argument in the last podcast was that the European Union had broken its own laws, creating a transfer union in which debts and deficits of member states can be covered and paid for by other members and the central authorities. A number of milestones on this road of monetary accommodation were explained in the last episode. For example, the 1998 Pact, restricting government deficits to 3% and national debt to 60% of GDP, and which has become meaningless. The 2010-12 bailout fund, issuing debt backed by the Eurozone countries and giving cheap loans to member states with conditions for structural reforms. This was not legal, but at least it required structural reforms, which however outraged the receivers of these cheap loans, Greece in particular. In 2015, the European Union embarked upon a vast programme of quantitative easing, whereby the ailing banks were kept on life support, with little reform of their toxic and non-performing loans, excessive debts and inefficient structures except that far more debt and moral hazard were created. A concise recent article in the Financial Times, August 31, 2020, by Patrick Jenkins, is enlightening, entitled Health Concerns Around Europe's Obese and Addicted Banks, with the subtitle Interventions Have Destroyed Returns and Left Most Lenders 
essentially uninvestable, which put into ordinary language means that the interventions of central banks, their low interest rates, quantitative easing, etc., have destroyed the economic viability of the banking system. The banks who are supposed to be aiding other sectors of the economy to invest are not worth being invested in themselves. An irony that escapes most economists. And the latest 2020 pandemic emergency purchase programme to buy huge amounts of corporate and sovereign debt of the indebted countries. But what is new is that the European Union can issue debt on the world capital markets and use it to distribute to other member states. Italy in particular is expected to be the largest beneficiary. After all, it put most pressure on the Union threatening exit. All this is of dubious legality and is stealth federalisation, by which the power of the centre grows, while yet it surrenders to the demands of the weaker member states, in fear that they will leave, that the Union will unravel, and an enormous banking crisis will ensue. A situation they have created by artificially low interest rates, excessive quantitative easing and so on. Thus the politics of the Union becomes corrupt and accommodating monetary policy is the essential glue holding it together which continues to inflate the unstable structure encouraging ever more debts and pumping more cheap money into the system. Let us revise a simple piece of economics which I shall put on my website animalhand.com under the philosophy section. The subject of revision is floating exchange rates. To explain, let us greatly simplify the world economy to two countries, the United States and the UK, and suppose they each export only one commodity. The US exports computers and the UK exports cars. No other international trade or country exists. The exchange rate between the dollar and the pound, let us suppose, is one to one. One dollar exchanges for one pound. Each computer is priced at one dollar and each car at one pound. Therefore, one computer exchanges for one car. Let us ignore transaction costs of currency exchange for the moment also. Let us suppose these prices remain steady within each country. However, the exchange rate changes or floats according to the laws of supply and demand. Should the demand for dollars exceed the demand for pounds, then the dollar rises in price in relation to the pound. For example, it changes to $1 equals £2 instead of its old rate, $1 equals £1. It has now doubled in value, appreciated by 100%. It buys twice as many cars as before. Conversely, £1, instead of exchanging for $1, now exchanges for $0.50. Cents. It is halved in value. And now it would require £2 to import the United States computer. The pound, therefore, has depreciated by 50%. Let us return to the original situation, $1 equals £1. Trade takes place between the two countries based on this exchange rate, and flows of foreign exchange are in balance. Let us now suppose that there is a rise in the demand for United States computers and a fall in the demand for UK cars. The demand for dollars now rises as more pounds are seeking to be exchanged for dollars to buy the computers. Conversely, the demand for pounds now falls 
as less dollars are seeking to be exchanged for pounds. This leads to an imbalance in the flows of dollars and pounds and a new equilibrium is established in which the price of the dollar rises and the pound falls, such as in our rather extreme example, the new exchange rate becomes $1 equals £2. What happens next to trade? For the UK, the price of the imported United States computers has doubled, thus provoking a fall in demand for them, and the emergence of a home-produced alternative computer in the UK. At any rate, the demand drops, and this tends to correct the outflow of pounds exchanged for dollars in order to purchase computers. The increased demand for United States computers diminishes. However, in the United States, whereas the demand for UK cars had been falling, it now increases because the exchange rate has changed from $1 equals £1 to $1 equals £2. The British cars become 50% cheaper and this will lead to an increase in demand for this product. Thus the result of the floating exchange rate and the consequent appreciating dollar and depreciating pound tend to correct trade deficits and surpluses. Although this example is greatly simplified, let us extract the central principle that in the case of imbalances in trade and currency flows between countries, floating exchange rates tend to correct for them. The natural differences between countries and their economies will get compensated for. Now, this correction principle is eliminated in currency unions simply because all countries share the same currency. So there cannot be floating exchange rates between them. This has enormous consequences for the currency union. The only impediments to buying goods and services from other countries in the European Union is the amount of euros a country possesses and the prices of those goods and services. Thus, in the currency union, for a weaker country to attract more demand for its products, for example its tourism, its price structure needs to fall as well as its quality improve. And this requires that wages reduce and labour markets become more productive. These are not easy tasks, since there is great pressure for price differences within the union to become less, and there is usually great resistance to a reduction in wages. After all, as price differences become less between countries of the union, the price structure of the weaker countries will rise, and this puts enormous pressure on wages to rise also. Given these difficulties, the weaker countries expand their national and corporate and financial sector debts, thus obtaining either more euros from banks across the Union or borrowing foreign exchange on the world capital markets and converting it to euros. These countries become more indebted, especially when there is little to stop them so doing, and especially if they and their lenders believe their debts will eventually be guaranteed by the European Union itself. The task of the floating exchange rate is to reflect and even out the differences between countries and help government to manage its finances. A currency union takes this away, while the differences remain between countries. The differences in investment, the differences in productivity levels, the differences in performance. Instead of the European hope that the less developed economies would raise their productivity, weaker countries actually can lose their competitiveness and productivity with respect to stronger countries 
and productive capital moves to stronger nations. The interest rate in the weaker country is lower than it otherwise would be because it is determined by the currency union, so the weaker states are subsidised, so they become less productive but more highly indebted. But when a shock hits, capital flees the weaker states and a debt crisis emerges, such as in the European Union in 2008-10. Underlying much of the European strategy is the defence of the euro, which is conceived to be the core of the European project. If that is abandoned, it would be a great blow to the project of European identity. Let me explain. A common currency unites 19 of the 27 countries of the European Union. This is supposed to facilitate trade, commerce, travel, banking and secure the economic integration of the Union. Transaction costs of exchanging one currency for another are eliminated, thus promoting savings for all parties, except for those who exchange foreign currency, of course. These advantages and savings are certainly significant. However, as explained, countries that share the same currency cannot devalue or depreciate their currencies against one another. But if Greece had its own drachma again, and if Germany had the Deutschmark again, then as Germany becomes more productive and exports increase, its currency would appreciate against other currencies, including the Greek drachma. As Greece undergoes its crises, its currency would depreciate. Its exports and its tourism become cheaper and more competitive, and this promotes greater demand for them, while there is less demand for the expensive German products, which are rising in price due to the appreciating currency. Thus, there is a tendency for the differences between countries to be compensated for. Not completely, of course, but to some extent. If Greece continues to raise debt and cannot pay it back, then, like the recent case of Argentina in 2020, it negotiates a lower return for its lenders. Or if this is not possible, it reneges entirely. Greece's debts, like Argentina's, would then be its own problems, as well as the problems of its creditors, of course. Other countries are not forced to bail them out. Different currencies and their floating exchange rates encourage greater self-responsibility of nations. This responsibility is diminished when excessive and irresponsible lending to that country takes place. However, the currency union does the opposite. By eliminating individual currencies, the differences between individual member states cannot be compensated for by currency appreciations and depreciations. If, in addition, each state is allowed to expand its debt without restraint, then the Union has an enormous problem. Many of the banks of the stronger countries have lent heavily to the indebted nations, and therefore, if these nations exit the Union and or renege on their debts, then a banking crisis is activated in the supposedly stronger countries. Governments step in with new monetary creations to rescue the banks and the stricken financial system. And so a vicious cycle is started, which can only end in disaster. Division in the European Union has sharpened. Federalists, determined to save the euro, have become very radical and are determined not to give up any ground. Nationalist movements, on the other hand, are pushing within countries for exit from the Union. The political divisions in the European Union are now very intense. 
Thomas Malinen, in his deeply perceptive blogs and publications, references in my website, has persuasively argued that the answer is to abandon the euro in order to save the European Union by allowing countries to return to their original currency. This is the middle ground to save the European Union. However, I fear it has now all but disappeared. It would require that the euro is dismantled. Now, I agree that such a proposition might be the only solution. But this does not prevent countries reneging on debt as they exit the euro and retreat back to their own currencies. Thus, banking collapses would certainly follow. However, if these banking collapses and economic depression are survived and Europe is still intact, then a union without the euro would be more sustainable. However, the grand project of a united Europe acting as a single country would have disappeared because that is ultimately what is required in a union, that all countries act as if they are one single country and therefore transfer flows from one part of the union to another are not felt to be a loss. This happens in many countries where the more productive regions subsidise, give regional transfers to the less productive. And nobody thinks that to be a bad thing because they accept themselves as one country and one people. It's because the European Union doesn't accept each other as one single country and because it's felt very strongly by the more prosperous countries that they shouldn't be subsidising the less prosperous. What they want is for the less prosperous countries to become more productive and they're willing to help in that. But they feel very difficult about subsidising. If the European Union stuck to its treaties and original agreements, then it would not engage in debt financing of member countries. It would facilitate weaker members to leave the Union. It would have to enforce the Stability and Growth Pact fining countries for stepping over the 60% national debt to GDP ratio, thus pushing weaker member states into greater financial difficulty. This would cause outrage in these countries and propel their exit from the Union. To stop further debt increases, they would really have to take away the right of member states to increase their debt at all, something the member states would not accept. The European Union authorities are prepared to do none of this. They do not want to face member states leaving and ending the European project, which is for an integrated, prosperous and harmonious Europe. They fear the European Union would completely unravel, creating anarchy across the continent, and they are determined to defend the euro, the centrepiece of their dream for integration. Instead, they are choosing the route of the transfer union, federalisation, accommodation of the weaker states, hyper-Keynesian monetary and fiscal policies, which, although providing short-term palliative relief, are postponing and augmenting the later crisis. Instead of reducing debt, or at least preventing it increasing, they have created a common European Union debt vehicle, by which the EU issues its own debt, borrows money on the world markets and then distributes it to member states who are, of course, lining up for their handouts, which, if they do not receive, they threaten to leave the Union anyway. So now we have excess and unpayable debt of many member countries who have not been controlled in this debt creation, but on the contrary have continued with their debt expansion, knowing they are backed up by the European Union ultimately. In addition... The European Union itself is about to issue debt. 
So it will borrow on the world markets, putting in debt the union as a whole. Of course, this is seen as a safer bet, since the EU controls its own currency and can print up as much of it as it likes. Something the member states of the Eurozone cannot do. The dangers of inflation, currency depreciation, corruption of the union, ever-increasing debt and the distortion to the whole economy are ignored. You can imagine the delight in the weaker and more indebted nations. They can continually threaten the EU with exit unless it borrows and distributes to them. This debt is shared by the members of the union. Thus, mutualisation of debt is assured, that's the sharing of it, which breaks the laws of the European Union. This is the slippery road that the EU has engaged in since the post-2008-10 crisis. This is what the Articles of the Union were meant to protect against. Thus, the EU leaders are caught between a rock and a hard place, between gigantic opposites. On the one hand, as countries enter into economic crises, there is threat of the breakup of the Union and the destruction of the European dream, the great project. A banking crisis would be sure to follow as debts are reneged upon and the lending banks, many in France and Germany, collapse, triggering a global financial crisis. On the other hand, the opposite, the road of federalisation, the defence of the euro, the common currency union and the placating of the weaker member states. The issuing of a common European debt is a milestone on this path. The European Union has chosen this second option. This crisis is principally created, therefore, by central banks and governments, both national and the European Union, who have pursued policies of excessive money creation, encouraging a vast debt structure that dominates the thinking and behaviour of states, corporations, the financial system, and now millions of individuals who have indebted themselves on the assumption that the good times, the boom, will continue forever and are totally unprepared for the crash. Untold misery, family breakup and suffering follow from such policies. But more importantly, the integrity and robustness of the state is jeopardised. One has only to observe those countries where political collapse happens, modern Venezuela for example, that in almost all cases it is preceded and accompanied by the destruction of the currency, the money system, by excessive debts and money creation, which are the road to ruin. The first duty of government is the protection of the integrity of the country, for which the soundness of the monetary system is as crucial as national defence. Unfortunately, there is little understanding of this, and the economics profession has become the least able to explain it. It appears to me that few modern economists are aware of this fundamental distortion to the economy as its price signalling systems are destroyed, of the importance of sound money, proper interest rate structures, the vital importance of low debts, the value of having adequate reserves, foreign exchange and gold, the importance of national savings to face the difficult times that inevitably come, the great dangers of stock market and asset price inflation, especially housing. Because of the philosophies that have invaded modern economics, all the dangerous practices of central banks and governments with respect to monetary policy are simply denied, ignored or become unknown. However, as the crisis bites, an increasing number 
of inquirers realise that the root of the crisis lies in a false conception of economics. This is not a new realisation. It is a rediscovery of what had been known in the past. It is repressed knowledge centering around the concepts of sound money, which have been so well explained by the Austrian school, especially von Mises and Hayek. It is also something well explained by Chaim Minsky in the late 20th century. However, these principles go back to the 19th century. It is because modern economics is so deeply influenced by Keynesian type thinking that it believes itself so justified in its dangerous policies. Ironically, it was Keynes himself who wrote the following. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. Well, Keynes may be personally defunct, but his theories are very much alive, and he could scarcely be called an academic scribbler. Such was the power of his influence in the 20th century and into our own times. In the times to come, Europe will have to enter into a dark period, which is self-created. The longer it proceeds down the road of debt and excessive money creation, the deeper it will be. In the next episode, in two weeks' time, I will summarise these arguments concerning the dilemmas and prospects of the European Union, followed by a theoretical exploration of the crises of capitalism. I hope you can join me.